Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Saturday, January the 21st, 2023. This show will be rebroadcast on Monday, January the 23rd, 2023, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Just a reminder, the opinions expressed on bringing light into darkness are my own and those of my guests and not necessarily those of Co-op Radio. We welcome an ongoing dialogue with our listening public. At koop.org, all comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 142nd post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Again, thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight, as quite frankly we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, where we invite you to join in our weekly pursuit for social justice. A pursuit where we seek to separate fact from fiction, and where we acknowledge uncertainty, where we seek to deconstruct deceit by identifying where unproven allegations are presented as fact through repetition in the absence of evidence, and where uncertainties are approached from a humble, critical thinking perspective, because our interest is in deconstructing deceit and oppression, not enabling it. Dr. King told us that we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Bringing light into darkness seeks to bring informational insights to lead us out of that darkness. And tonight, we ask you to listen to the show with an open heart and an honest mind. We have two January 17th, 2023 interviews, one of Gonzalo Lera who has been working and living under fire in Ukraine, and the other by Colonel Douglas McGregor, a military expert. The show promises powerful tools of information that get us much closer to the truth than our media will allow us. Enjoy. The Vietnam War and other U.S. conflicts abroad and at home led Dr. Martin Luther King in his Beyond Vietnam speech of April 4th 1967, to describe our country as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. We have a long documented history of our government and our media misleading the United States public into a profound ignorance of what our foreign policy is really doing around the world. In addition to the deceits around Vietnam, we were lied into the war of Iraq and millions more died. We were lied into the Libyan invasion of 2011 and the support of the 2009 Honduran coup. We have been lied from the start about Syria 
We have been kept in the complete dark about Yemen and our responsibility of hundreds of thousands of deaths there. All of these deceits have been detailed on previous Bringing Light into Darkness shows and are available upon request. So when it comes to the Ukraine, it is a mystery why the American public believes Ukrainian claims that the United States remains silent on in order to promote these falsehoods without lying ourselves. And I wanted to start the show off today specifically about casualties in the course of the war in the Ukraine, in which we've been told from day one how Ukraine was winning, how Russia was fumbling, how Russia was losing all of this land. But no one has spoke about the casualty rates except on this show. And on August 15th, 2022, after much research by bringing light into darkness, that was also confirmed by the independent study and numbers of Scott Ritter, the UN weapons inspector that correctly warned us about the laws of Iraq. On August 15th, these are the numbers that he shared on the air. Referring to civilian casualties, he said, I quote, historically in military conflicts, there's a one-to-one ratio for every combatant dead so is a civilian. However, on August 15, 2022, 250,000 Ukrainian soldiers had been killed or wounded. And of that number, he estimated 80,000 were dead Ukrainian soldiers, which means historically there should have been 80,000 dead Ukrainian civilians, but there was not. He said the number was some 8 to 10,000. In other words, a 1 to 8 ratio rather than a 1 to 1 ratio. When you look at the intensity of the combat that has created 250,000 casualties and 80,000 Ukrainian military deaths and only eight to 10,000 civilian deaths, that's telling you that the Russians are very, very specific in their targeting, that there is not this indiscriminate slaughter of civilians that we have falsely been led to believe. It's very specific targeting, he said. He went on, as we now know, thanks to the Washington Post and Amnesty International, that the Ukrainian government has been using its own civilians as human shields. The very thing that we were claiming Russia was doing, in fact, Ukraine was doing, indiscriminate killing of civilians. So that when Ukrainian civilians die because of combat, there's a far greater probability that they are dying because of their own army, the Ukrainian army using them as civilian shields because the Russians have not been indiscriminately targeting civilian areas. No doubt there's the possibility of collateral damage, he indicated. But they are trying to do everything possible to minimize the loss. The vast majority of civilian deaths in Ukraine are solely attributable to the fact that the Ukrainian army uses them as human shields. We know this is the case with the far-right groups, the nationalists, the Nazi neo-Nazis, who go and round up civilians and put them in apartment buildings upon and within which they have put in anti-tank ambushes. Their heavy machine guns being protected by human shields, a clear violation of international law. Daring the Russians to blow up the building. You know what the Russians don't do? He said they don't blow up the buildings. The Russians, if you go to the Battle of Maripol, there are endless accounts of how the soldiers sacrificed their lives to gain access to a building so they could evacuate the hundreds of civilians in the basement and trying to gain access to the civilians in the upper floors and then work manually to clear the floors in some of the bloodiest close infighting when the easiest solution would have been to drop the building with a thermobaric bombs. And to drop those bombs, those thermobaric bombs, would have resulted in hundreds of dead civilians. And in fact, 
That is what the United States would have done, as we did in Iraq. We would have dropped the building with a thermobaric bomb because the law of war allows you to do this when the enemy uses those tactics. When the enemy decides to turn a civilian residence into a military strong point, it becomes a legitimate target and the civilians living there become collateral damage. The crime is not the person dropping the building. The crime is the person keeping the civilians there. The Ukrainian army is a war criminal organization, according to that behavior as described by Scott Ritter. And in fact, Russia's behavior and the minimal number of deaths to civilians is a reflection of their much more humanitarian approach than we would have ever used. But tonight I wanted to supplement these accounts of casualties in the Ukrainian-Russian war by yet other independent sourcing and analysts. One of them is Colonel Douglas McGregor, who is a decorated combat veteran and former advisor to the Secretary of Defense, spent many years in the European theater, and is familiar with all of these NATO countries and war in general. We cite an interview with Judge Andrew Napolitano's Judging Freedom show that aired January 17th, 2023. Here is the colonel speaking about casualties. We reckon that uh, we can confirm 122,000 Ukrainian dead through various open sources, newspapers, obituaries, people on the ground counting. However, we've also managed to discover that there are at least 35,000 missing in action, presumed dead. So if you add those two sums together, you come up with roughly 157,000 dead. That's about right. If you add to that another 300 plus thousand casualties, you have a good picture of what effectively has been the total destruction of the Ukrainian army that they began the war with in an attempt to build back with reserves and untrained recruits. Now, on the Russian side, we can account for somewhere between 16 and 20,000 dead and perhaps 50,000 wounded. When you run the calculus, that's about one Ukrainian killed for every eight Ukrainians killed. That's a losing proposition in a war. That is a losing proposition. Eight times as many Ukrainian soldiers dead as Russian soldiers dead. Yes. Not disputed, factually acquired from open sources. Fair to yeah. say? Yes, absolutely. Now bear in mind the Ukrainians have never told the truth about their deteriorating situation. So you're not going to get the Ukrainian government under any circumstances to admit to that. On the other hand, they'll lie to you prolifically about all the Russian troops that they theoretically killed or wounded. But these figures are pretty good. They're from people on the ground, people in international organizations, people looking at the situation on the ground through satellites, a combination of all those sources, reading papers, reading reports, and so forth. It's a good snapshot of where we are right now. Everyone goes back to the beginning uh, in February of this year when Russia went in with a very different set of assumptions that led to, in my judgment, a mistake. They went in thinking that they were going to reach some sort of negotiated settlement. They wanted to use a small force, minimize damage. What happened is that people walked away from that experience saying, well, the Russians are obviously incompetent. They're weak. They don't know what they're doing. This is not true, but that's what we thought. And as you know, historically, Washington always emotes, it doesn't think. And Washington was so enamored of the idea that the Russians were weak and incompetently led that they decided to pile on. And they've been piling on ever since, 
Ultimately, the outcome, though, for Ukraine is that Ukraine has long ago breached the limits of its capabilities. Russia is only now peaking. And the consequence is that they're staring annihilation in the face. On the same subject, namely military casualties, Gonzalo Lira, a Chilean-American novelist and filmmaker who actually has been residing in the war zone in Ukraine, was interviewed on the same date, January 17th, 2023, by George Galloway, a British politician, broadcaster, and writer who is currently the leader of the Workers' Party of Britain and has been serving since 2019. Here is Lyra's perspective on casualties as he responds to George Galloway's question. I wanted to ask you, finally, Gonzalo, there's a lot of Ukrainians in exile, usually the ones with the big BMWs. I had a run-in with some of them uh, just this very day. There's a lot of Pol- been, uh, Ukrainians been killed. Uh, there's a lot of Ukrainians already in the army. There's a lot, as the mothers and wives were demonstrating in Kiev today, a lot of missing Ukrainian service personnel who haven't been accounted for or not admitted as dead. But there's also now a draft, it's quite clear from some of the pictures and video, a draft of very young children in Ukrainian military uniform and very old men, even older than me, in uniform now in military roles. That seems to indicate a scraping of the barrel by Zelensky. Is he running out of soldiers? Nobody really knows. But the fact that we've seen a lot of videos that indisputably proves that, you know, little boys, um, 16, 15 years old, wearing a military uniform and carrying a weapon. And we've also seen older men. I mean, men who are clearly in their late 40s, 50s, killed. You know, I mean, we, we, I, I saw, I've seen some videos of Ukraine soldiers who are dead and they've lost their helmets and, and they're bald like us older guys. I mean, we all get balder and that's why do you guys wear a cap? And, you know, we, we all get bolder and we can instantly tell, oh, that guy's older. That guy's in his 40s, you know. And, yeah, you were seeing a lot of that and it's despicable. And, and, and nobody really knows the numbers because the um, Kiev regime is very, very cagey about the number of its losses. They have propagandized the people into thinking that the losses amount to, you know, maybe 15, maybe 20,000 dead. But it's much, much more. I mean, the fact is Ursula von der Leyen let slip in her speech that at least 100,000 had been killed. This was a month or so ago. But the actual number... Nobody really knows, but credible estimates of people who have been on top of the numbers and trying to get the numbers from different ways, they're saying that it's way above 125,000 killed, and a lot of people are saying it's closer to 150,000 killed, and so far as wounded incapacitated, because there are wounded and there are and who could be patched up and sent back to the front, and then there are wounded who are just not going to go back. They've lost a limb or whatnot. You know, you're talking maybe 180 to 220,000 wounded incapacitated. So altogether, you're talking conservatively 320,000 men who are out of commission. That's extraordinary numbers we're talking about here. And it seems to be credible. And so far as the Russian losses, the BBC for a while was very carefully combing through all social media and all Russian news informations and outlets, trying to come up with credible estimates as to the Russian dead. And they stopped doing this back in July, August, I believe, because the numbers they were getting were so low, it didn't fit their narrative. They were only estimating maybe, uh, as, I think it was uh, the last number was seven to 8,000 men. 
and currently it's credibly estimated that the Russians, all Russian forces, Wagner PMC, the Chechen fighters, DPR and LPR uh, militiamen, and the Russian army, they've lost maybe killed in action 20,000. So let's take the conservative figures, the, the ones that Ursula von der Leyen said, which is 100,000 killed uh, of the Kiev regime, and compare that to the outside number of the total Russian dead, which is 20,000, you're talking a ratio of 5 to 1. Okay. And the general in charge of the Ukraine armed forces, he said that they currently had, as of this was about two weeks ago, 10 days ago, he said that they currently had 200,000 men. He said this to the Wall Street Journal and The Economist, who did a round of uh, interviews with them, right? They had 200,000 men under arms. And the Russians, it is known that they have 600, 650,000 right now on the borders of Ukraine. So this is an attritional conflict. And ultimately, in an attritional war, what matters is who has the bigger numbers and who can inflict the greater losses. If the Russians are inflicting casualties at a rate of 5 to 1, and on top of that, they have over three times the armed force that the Ukraine side has, then it becomes just an, an inevitability. The outcome is not in dispute. It's just a matter of how we will get to that outcome and in what time frame. I mean, this war ended as a practical matter quite some time ago in the sense that we know who's going to win. You know when you're playing some board game or something, you know, perhaps you're playing with your children like Monopoly or something, or you're playing chess with a friend, and there's that moment when you realize, oh, it's over, I lost. I mean, yeah, I can keep on playing, but the result, we know it. Th that moment has gone. I mean, it, it, it's obvious now. There, the inevitability of this conflict is obvious, but the cost that we, we, we inflicted on these boys. I mean, we, you were talking about, you're, we're talking 15, 16-year-old children. That's unconscionable. I mean, at least, you know, with the old men who are fighting, well, you know, they don't have that much life to, ahead of them, quite frankly. I mean, it, it, it sounds callous, but, you know, at least there's that comfort. They lived a life and then they died in a war. Horrible. But some 16-year-old child, they shouldn't be within 100 kilometers of any kind of combat like that. They're too young. They're babies. Because I've seen the videos. It's, it's horrifying, these, horrifying to see these indeed. children. And I'm sorry I'm getting No, no, it's, uh, an, emotional, it's an emotional yeah. subject. Uh, Gonzalo Lira is always... We return to Judge Napolitano's interview of Colonel McGregor as he asks him about the entry of tanks and other hardware into the battlefront by Western powers and its impact on the outcome of the conflict. What will be the response or significance militarily, if any, of the introduction of a handful of German and French tanks into the Ukraine military? Yeah, when okay. General Zhaluzhny was interviewed by The Economist, you remember this because you commented yes. on it, yeah. and he said, I need 500 tanks. You said, well, what, he, what he needs and wants is another army. Yeah, precisely. And he can't get that. It's one thing to get new equipment. It's another to get several different types of equipment, and it's another to find people who are adequately trained and familiar with the equipment to use and employ it effectively. That's the big problem. Uh, they've released, as I, my last look at uh, the numbers was about 40 to 50 Bradleys were released from our pre-position sets in Europe. What is a Bradley, Colonel? Is it's an infantry fighting vehicle. Its main armament consists of a 25-millimeter automatic cannon on top with a 7.62 machine gun coaxially mounted, plus a tow missile launcher. 
and it could normally carry three-man crew, and you could push as many as six to seven, even eight people in the back if you want to. But it's really designed for six in the back and three on board as the crew. Can it be characterized as a tank? No, no, it's not. It, it's, it's just an infantry fighting vehicle. It's designed to move infantry to the battlefield and give them fire support. It's a good system. It's, it's not revolutionary, but it's a good system. It has flaws like every armored fighting vehicle system has. But the point is, this is a brand new set of equipment for which the Ukrainians have no infrastructure logistically to support. And it's a system they don't know. And, and quite frankly, it's complex. It takes a long time to learn how to maintain a 25-millimeter automatic cannon with perhaps a thousand moving parts. Uh, this is not something you just hand to somebody and say, go for it. And the same thing's true with the tow missile. So even though these are arriving now, their ability to have much impact is limited. And hopefully, if they do use these for maximum effect, they will keep them together. The worst thing you can do is parcel these things out across the front where they won't have expertise or logistical support of any kind. Do we know what type of hardware is about to be sent by Germany and France? Are they actually tanks? And is it more than just a handful? Or stated differently, whatever France and Germany are about to send, will it have any impact on the battlefield? Well, the AMX-30 is a 105-millimeter rifled cannon, similar to, is essentially a British cannon that was mounted on a French wheeled chassis. It's a, it's a light armored weapon that has minimal utility, designed for use by the French, frankly, in North Africa, something they could rapidly fly into Chad or Algeria or wherever they were required in order to suppress insurgencies or, uh, let us simply say, low-tech enemies. So, no, I wouldn't expect that to have much impact. The best you could do with something like that is uh, use it in ambush inside an urban center where it has some protection. Uh, as for the German tanks, uh, they're talking about Leopards. The Germans have provided the Gepard, which is anti-aircraft gun, and they have had to make more ammunition for it. It's had some success. But as far as tanks are concerned, if they send the Leopard over there, it will be a landmark moment in German history because the Germans historically have been reluctant to supply belligerents in battle with equipment for reasons that have to do with the interpretation of their constitution. I this wonder why the new um, chancellor, other than maybe the ideological view that it's NATO's goal to get rid of uh, Putin, uh, is willing to make this historic leap. If, if you look at the other side of the world, the Japanese are almost making a similar leap with respect to doubling the size of their military budget. And another story for another time. But what, what is the German chancellor's goal or game here? This can't be popular with the German people, is it? Well, remember that all the Western publics, along with our own, have been treated to this steady diet of uh, hatred for Russia. I mean, the mainstream media depicts Russia in every conceivable way as unfavorably as it can. Same thing is true in Germany. Lies about what the Russians have or have not done on the battlefield, about their targeting, war fighting, all of that has combined to effectively build some level of support for opposing Russia. And remember, these are old stereotypes that go back to the Second War and the Cold War. So it's easy to dig those up, refresh people's memories. But I think uh, Schultz has lost sight of the fact that he is preeminently the Chancellor of Germany. He is not just, quote unquote, a vassal state of NATO, and that he leads a great power. I think he should seriously reconsider the wisdom of sending anything to Ukraine right now. 
not only will it uh, bring up bad memories of the Second World War to see German iron crosses painted on the sides of vehicles going into battle against contemporary Russian forces, but it just doesn't make any sense because the Ukrainians have no chance of winning. None of this stuff is going to make any difference to the outcome. Then, of course, you have the British. They want to send 12 or 14 Challenger two tanks. Remember, all of these tanks do not use the same ammunition. It's not only repair parts and engines and everything else. Uh, supplying and sustaining this is a mess. There are probably another 100 Soviet-era tanks from other places potentially available over the next few months. But again, none of this is going to change the outcome. This is tinkering on the margins of a disaster. The Financial Times, an international newspaper written in Europe and printed all over the United States, I'm sure you're familiar with it, makes the following argument this morning in two editorials. One says, is Putin prepared for taking back Ukraine and the 20 years of guerrilla warfare which will be waged against his civilian and, and security forces that are there? And two, won't a Putin a victory make Russia poorer, more isolated, and more dictatorial? You want to address either of those challenges? Sure. Can I start with the second one first? Please. Before Colonel McGregor answers that question, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis, and we will return to Bringing Light into Darkness right after this brief pause for the cause. 